0: Grab your Bibles. And make your way to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 9 this morning, looking in verses 51 through 56. <clears throat> As you make your way there, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that you're a great, mighty God and you love us and you revealed that love for us. We thank you for the testimony that Sandra uh, led us with this morning and just be able to gather in your name to lift your name up on high, to worship you and your, your holiness. And Father, we just ask that your scriptures just be open to us this morning. Your Holy Spirit would speak to all of our hearts, that uh, we would be ready to hear what you have to say. We have ears to listen and eyes to see. And, uh, Father, just give me the the words. Uh, don't let me get in the way of what you want to do here this morning. And, uh, I pray for everyone here this morning, Lord, that we would just uh, continue to worship you, through the teaching and listening of your word and understanding it and being transformed by it. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior yet, or if you have yet to make that, that commitment and following your example in baptism, Father, I pray your spirit to speak to their hearts in a way it can. Lord, and you would just move them to be obedient to what you lay before us in your word. If someone here doesn't know you, Lord, let this day be the day of their salvation. We thank you for the great passion you have shown through your son, Jesus Christ, and uh, we thank you for saving us and forgiving us and giving us eternal life and calling us yours and heirs to your kingdom. Continue to guide and lead us and be our shepherd. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So um, some of y'all know this about me. I'm a middle earth fan. Uh, For some of you who don't know what middle earth is. Uh, it's the world created by J.R. Tolkien, uh, particularly with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And uh, one of my favorite lines in the movie The Hobbit is actually near the very beginning of the movie as Bilbo Baggins comes dashing out of his house under a Hill and he's running to catch up with the dwarves. And one of another Hobbit asks, Where are you off to, Bilbo Baggins? And his response is, I love it because I say it almost every time we get in the cars of families. I'm going on an adventure, and so he takes off running, and I bring that up, not because we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit or anything like that, but our passage this morning, Jesus and his disciples, most likely a group of other people following him, are going on an adventure. They're on a journey to Jerusalem. As a side note before we did in our passage, there is a debate about our passage this morning, about when did this actually take place. In our passage last week, we were in the Gospel of John chapter 7, and Jesus was confronted by his brothers. They wanted him to go down to Jerusalem to the Feast of Booths, and he responded to them that it was not his time. Of course, we looked at a couple verses after that and found out that he did in fact go, uh, but he did it in private. With this series, what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring all four Gospels together as chronologically as possible to get the full meaning and picture of Jesus' ministry. And that's not always easy. And the reason I brought up the debate, because our passage this morning is debated between scholars about when it actually occurred within Jesus' ministry. Did it fall with John chapter 7 and Jesus journeying down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths? It uh, could be. The Feast of Booth was six to seven months before the Passover festival, and we're going to attach this passage to that, but we're also going to work it out with the Passover and what the implications were with that. And so, again, many scholars debate because of the language in the passage. In any case, we know that this event happened. Uh, Luke records it from eyewitnesses. If you open up the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, you see that he gathered this information from eyewitnesses. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. All we do know for sure whether or not the timing is correct is that Jesus is in the region of Samaria. So let's read it, and we'll walk through it. Beginning in verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, the word of the Lord says, When the days drew near... To another village. So the debate really is in verse 51, and when it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, again, Luke is the writer of this gospel. He gathers from eyewitnesses. He also writes the book of Acts. It can be tied to the Feast of Booth, simply because the Feast of Booth is so closely related to the Passover celebration. We know Jesus does, in fact, go to Jerusalem, but it was based upon the Father's time, it was based upon the Father's will, it was based upon bringing the Father glory. But Luke uses this phrase frequently in pointing to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and ultimately his ascension back into heaven. Now, Luke wasn't an apostle He was a colleague of the Apostle Paul's, so he probably got some of this information from the Apostle Paul, but we know that he traveled with Paul, and you can find that in the book of Acts. What is important about this event is not so much the timing of when it actually occurred, but the resolve of Jesus, and Luke points this out twice. He says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and then he says it again just a little bit differently in verse 53, his face was set toward Jerusalem. And so we learn something about Jesus just in this simple phrase, and that's the determination of Jesus. Jesus was all about completing the Father's plan even before time began. His face being set meant that he was determined. He was determined and set in completing the plan to which the Father had set in place. Now, if it is connected to the Feast of Booths in John 7... We know that from that passage in John 7 that the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus knew the religious leaders had a determination to see him dead. Jesus knew when it happened, it was going to be a horrendous death. Now, if this was the Passover journey to Jerusalem, then Jesus knew in this moment that this would be the very last time that he would be making this journey. In either case, Jesus knew that the time on earth was coming to a close, and yet he chose to go. He was determined. His face was set. And this is what is so remarkable about Jesus. He knew about the pain that was awaiting him in Jerusalem. He knew about the betrayals that were going to come. He knew that those closest to him would not understand, and they would turn and they would hide. He knew those who once praised him and loved him would turn on him and lead to his crucifixion, yet he still went. And so we kind of have to ask, you know, yes, he is about to follow his plan, but how would you have that much determination? Well, The reason Jesus was so determined to get to Jerusalem is because of you and me. Jesus was determined to save us from our sins because he loved us. I think we've all seen that look of determination on people's faces at times. Sometimes it comes in the face of aggression. Sometimes it's just that focus in the eyes. When I was in high school, I wrestled. I, I, I didn't do any of those sports where you ran long distances like my wife and my kids. I did the short burst uh, sports, the wrestling and the football. You know, you go 10 yards and then you're done. Um, and I wasn't a great wrestler. Um, I was all right, I was good enough to be on the varsity squad, Um, but I I enjoyed it, um, because it was short little periods. If you're not familiar with high school wrestling, I'm talking about real wrestling, not like Hulk Hogan wrestling, but like real wrestling where guys get in tights and they, it it, it sounds weird, but they, you know, they run around on the mat with one another. Anyway, um, so in, in wrestling, if you're not familiar, there are three periods, And obviously, the the point of the match is you want to pin your opponent. That's how you win. But you can also gain points by uh, doing, like, reversals. Uh, You can uh, do takedowns, getting the opponents on their back, or even getting behind your opponent. You can get enough points where you don't actually have to pin your opponent if you get enough points to end the match. And so I remember uh, it was my senior year, and we traveled to Iowa to have a, a meet. Now, if you're, again, unfamiliar with wrestling, Iowa is like the state for wrestling. I mean, that's just kind of what they do besides eat corn. So we, we go to Iowa, we're at this meet, and like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't like great, I knew I wasn't going to make it to state, um, I was just going to do my very best, and as we get there and we're warming up, the, my wrestling coach comes up to me and tells me about the individual that I'm going to be wrestling that night. And... He was ranked in the state of Iowa, and so I knew that meant he was pretty good. Um, He had been wrestling since he was in diapers, and so he had experience on me. We were about the same size. He was a lot quicker than I was, but uh, I think I had the strength on him, so I felt like the match should go okay, Uh, and and so I was determined, knowing my opponent, that I'm at least going to put up a fight. I'm not gonna let him pin me like within the first 30 seconds. I'm gonna make it tough for him. And so we, the match began, and two high school guys in tights started hugging. And <coughs> well, he, he was fast enough and had more experience that he got behind me, so point for him. And he got me what was called a half Nelson. So a half Nelson is when his arm is like that and my arm's like this. And we're standing up at this moment. And he squeezes so tight, I black out. I didn't have any oxygen. And so, I mean, everything went black. My brain was still functioning because as soon as that moment happened and I couldn't breathe, uh, I started to collapse because you need oxygen to stand or or to move. And my brain was telling me I was falling. And so, as I hit the mat, luckily, I came to my senses because I hit on my head and his grip loosened just enough. And when I came to The spirit of Samson came upon me, and I was so mad, I was so angry, I had so much aggression, that I got out of his hold, I got behind him, I put him in the same move, but we're on the mat, and I made him black out. In the name of Jesus, of course. As I get off the mat, because I I ended up winning, I pinned him, because, well, he wasn't breathing, but anyway... My wrestling coach, knowing the circumstances, knowing who this kid was, knowing where I was as far as a wrestler, he just looks at me and says, what happened? So I told him well, I blacked out, and then I made him black out. And So his, his plan was just do that every time. <laughs> but I was, I was determined that I was going to make this gentleman pay. And when we're determined to do something, here's the thing, nothing's going to stop us. And nothing is going to stand in our way. This is what our passage is telling us about Jesus. Nothing was going to stand in his way to complete his mission. His disciples were not going to be able to talk him out of it. The religious leaders, though they wanted him dead, weren't going to scare him off. The rejection of the people wasn't going to make him rethink it. It also tells us that Jesus was in complete control on what was going to take place in Jerusalem. It wasn't the religious leader's desire to kill him. It wasn't Judas's betrayal of him. It wasn't the guards who beat him. It wasn't Pilate who gave the order. Jesus was in complete control of all of it because he was determined to do it. He let it happen according to the Father's will. The second thing we see in our passage comes from verse 52 through 53. So Jesus sends a public relations ministry team on ahead of him into a village in the region of Samaria. And we're not told what village this this is. Luke doesn't give us that information. It's possible it's the same village that Jesus went to in John chapter 4 when he encountered the woman at the well. But we don't know. But we do need to gain a little background concerning the Samaritans and the Jewish people and their relationship with one another. Now this journey that Jesus takes is a little abnormal because most Jews would avoid Samaria altogether. They would go the long way around. But what we see in Jesus' ministry, he doesn't do that. He goes right through it. The Samaritans to the Jewish people were viewed as half-breeds. When Assyria came into the region and they conquered the land, the people of Samaria began to intermarry with the Assyrians. And so they got Titled as half-breeds or mutts because that was forbidden by God. So this led the Jewish people who didn't intermarry with the Assyrians to declare that the Samaritans are therefore cut off from God and they can no longer come to the temple to worship him there. That then led the Samaritans to say, well, we'll just build our own temple. And then they declared that when it comes to the Old Testament, what the Jewish people kept to as their Bible, that it was only the Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament, which is actually the Word of God. And with that declaration, they declared actually the Jewish people were cut off from God because they weren't worshiping God lawfully. And this, of course, ruffled the feathers of the Jewish people. And so they came into Samaria, and they destroyed their temple. And if you look in John chapter 4, when Jesus encounters the woman at the well, the argument is... Where do we worship? We say we worship on this mountain, but you say we must worship in Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans and the Jewish people basically started a holy war. War. Now, it wasn't unheard of for Jewish people to travel through Samaria, but they would never, never stay in a Samaritan town. They would never eat Samaritan food because they believed that would make them unclean. Now, in Jesus sending an entourage to make preparations for him in verse 52... The meaning is is that Jesus is sending this group into this region, this village in Samaria, in order to find a place for lodging. He was going to stay there. You see, Jesus understood it's not what we put into our bodies, it's not what we touch that makes us unclean, but it's all a matter of the heart. Also, with that said, Samaritans, it wasn't unheard of in history that when the Jewish people would make the pilgrimage from the north to the south or from the south back to the north, it, it was Not unheard of that the Samaritans would sometimes attack those Jewish pilgrims and they would sometimes kill those people. There's a lot of animosity between the two groups. Yet throughout the Gospel of Luke, the Samaritans are almost always seen in a positive light. For example, one of Jesus' more popular parables is the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is, in fact, the only time in the Gospel of Luke where the Samaritans are depicted in a negative light. But we learn something about their reaction to Jesus, and that is the rejection of Jesus. Now, the passage gives us the reason they rejected Jesus, because Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. He had his face set towards that. And so the rejection of Jesus is therefore based upon the histories of the Jews and the Samaritans and their preconceived notion about the temple that was in Jerusalem. And so we've already been seeing this a lot in Jesus' ministry. Not everybody is going to accept Jesus Christ. Jesus even tells us, flat out, that there are going to be more people who reject him than accept him. Because to accept Jesus Christ is to get on the narrow road, which is hard, but he says it leads to life. But those want to take the wide road, those who reject him, because it's easy. But he says that one goes to destruction. And as we see last week concerning God's will... It is God's will or his desire that all people would be saved. But at the same time, God knows there are going to be people who will not accept his gift of salvation that is only found through Jesus Christ. And so what we learn about the rejection of Jesus by the Samaritans lets us know why other people today reject Jesus. The first reason is their history. And I've encountered a lot of people throughout my time in ministry who are opposed to Christianity Not because of Jesus Christ, but because of what the church or Christians have done in the name of Christ. They have a history which has led to painful moments and have resolved that they want nothing to do with Christianity. They want nothing to do with the church. They want nothing to do with any form of religion. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want you to come visit them at their house. It isn't that they're beyond being saved. Everyone can be saved, but they have to deal with an issue that is going on in their heart. And we can learn that because the Samaritans eventually do that. In Acts chapter 8, the apostle Philip visits the region of Samaria. And there he begins to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, and we're told that many came to believe. And just, so just because someone may have a negative history with Christianity, here's the truth. That doesn't give us the option to brush them off. We must continue to preach the gospel. We must continue to live for Christ. And we must continue and hope and pray for Him that one day their hearts will be open and they will be saved. The other issue the Samaritans have is the pre- preconceived notion. When the individuals who went before Jesus to prepare a place for Him to stay, again, He wanted him to lodge there, He wanted to stay the night they were most likely going to have to tell the people who they're making the preparations for. So they would say something like this, we need a place for Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Jews, the Savior of the world is coming, and he needs a place to sleep. We can see this preconceived notion that the Samaritans have, again from John chapter 4 the woman, when she asked about where the right place to worship was. With this, the Samaritans like I said, did not believe the bulk of the Old Testament. So the prophecies that we have concerning Jesus Christ, they wouldn't have had any knowledge about it. They wouldn't have seen that as truth or God's word, even though there are prophecies within the first five books. The Samaritans' thought process through their preconceived notion would be, well, he's not here for us, he's here for the Jews, because he's the Jewish Messiah. Even though Jesus came to save all people today, people come with their preconceived notion about Jesus Christ and Christianity. For example, some people say, well, they don't need to be forgiven because they're a good person. They don't need Jesus because everyone's going to heaven eventually. All religions lead to God, doesn't it? They believe it's closed-minded to believe that Christianity is the only religion in the world that has it right and that the Bible is the only book in the world that has absolute truth. Or they go to the question, why would a loving God send people to hell? There are others, but these are reasons people reject Jesus. And as God's people, we're commanded in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. As God's people, we can't run away from difficult situations, Difficult discussions and difficult conversations. Instead, we have to act like Jesus, and we have to act like the Apostle Paul who imitated Jesus. And that we have to meet people where they are, so we can understand what's actually going on in their heart. And that, hopefully, will open the door so we can lead them to where they need to be, and that's in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And back to our passage, the Samaritans reject Jesus. It says, They do not receive him. Or did not receive him. What that means to say is they looked at Jesus Christ as he came into their little village and says, You're not welcome here. You can picture Forrest Gump getting on the bus. Can't sit here. So they looked at the Savior of the world and told him, Just keep going. Just keep going. When this happens, (laughs) John and James, brothers, Sons of Thunder. So, you know, this is going to be a great opportunity for us to speak up. So they want to tell Jesus the plan they have. And their solution to the rejection and the interaction with the Samaritans is, we should call fire down from heaven and destroy them. We should kill these dirty half-breeds who show no respect to the Savior of the world with fire to consume them. And it's not in Scripture. But when I picture Jesus, because we know he rebuked them, and we're not told what he said, but I picture Jesus as the two brothers bring up this idea for him. Shall we call fire down and destroy these, these people? I can just picture Jesus in my head looking at them and saying, what is wrong with you? And again, we're not told what he said when he rebuked them, But typically that word rebuke means to cast out demons. Whatever it was, it was a command and a very harsh lesson for the sons of thunder. And I wonder if Luke, who got eyewitness accounts, when he heard about this event, I wonder if he went looking for the apostle John to ask him, what did Jesus actually say to you? What were the words he used to rebuke you? And I can just picture John saying, you just say he rebuked us, it's sufficient. And can you imagine Peter in this moment? As Jesus rebukes the sons of thunder, I can just picture Peter like, finally, somebody else. <laughs> but what were they thinking? Well, John and James and the other disciples had been sent out by Jesus at one particular time. And they saw the power of God being used through them, and they experienced God's power. They were casting out demons. They were healing people. They were proclaiming the gospel. They knew that God wanted to and could use them. And in this moment, when they're asking about bringing fire down from heaven, here's what's going through their thought process. They're thinking about a story that took place in the Old Testament. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 1. And the story concerns the prophet Elijah. The event is uh, the king of Judah, named Ahaziah, who was in Samaria at the time, the same region that we find Jesus and the disciples in this moment. And King Haziah had an accident where he fell, and he was unable to move. And so this leads the king to send messengers to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. That would be a false god. And he led, wanted the messengers to go to this false god to ask if he would recover. So as the messengers are on their way to Beelzebub, Elijah confronts them. And he says, I want you to deliver this message to the king of Judah. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus does the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now, you can imagine when the messengers go back to the king to report what the prophet Elijah told them, how happy he would be in that moment. So the king summons his captain and 50 men, and then the king adds his own 50 men to go and find the prophet Elijah. And so they finally find him, and he's up on this hill, and they tell Elijah, you need to come down right now. And this is what Elijah says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And it did. The king hears of this, so he gets another captain and another 50 men. Gives them the exact same order. Go get that prophet and bring him to me. They go and they find Elijah. Elijah says the exact same thing to the captain and his men. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. King hears of this. Gets another captain and another 50 men. Go find that prophet Elijah and bring him to me. They go out to Elijah. The captain sees Elijah and he pleads for the life of his men that Elijah would have mercy because he knows that he is in fact, a man of God. And the point of the fire coming down by the cry of Elijah was the judgment upon the king of Judah because he did not seek after the one true God, but instead he sought after a false god that was worshipped in the land of the Philistines. So in our passage, James and John are viewing the rejection of Jesus by the Samaritans in the same, as the same sort of offense of the rejection of God and the practice of idolatry by the king of Judah. And so that's why they want fire to come down from heaven. But what the disciples had forgotten is what Jesus had taught them. You see, when he sent them out the first time, when they went out in twos, he told them that if you come to a village and it does not accept you, you are to shake the dust off your sandals, And move on to the next. He taught them that you are to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you. He told them, as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. He told them, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And he told them, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so the moving on of Jesus here reveals the mercy of Jesus. And when we look to the cross, we see the greatest example of the mercy of Jesus Christ and God our Father. Not only through his taking our punishment for our sins, but if you remember the story, as Jesus hung there on the cross, breathing his final breaths, there were soldiers at the foot of the cross mocking him, and gambling for his clothing. And as Jesus looked down at this spectacle for people he was dying to save, you know what he said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Interesting. The word mercy means kindness. It means goodness. It means grace. Pity compassion so jesus wanted his disciples and he wants us to understand when people reject the gospel they aren't rejecting us they're rejecting jesus the disciples and jesus entourage as they came into this village were not the ones being rejected it was jesus and though the disciples wanted to bring judgment upon the Samaritans, Jesus wanted them to understand that's not your place. You're in no place to judge another. They forgot another lesson in Jesus. Judge not that you be not judged. For With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so Jesus was giving his disciples a physical illustration of on what he had been teaching them up to this moment, and it's captured in that very last verse, verse 56. And they went on to another village. Even though things didn't go the way they planned, even though things didn't go the way they probably imagined, even though it seemed like everything was going wrong in this village, even though their feelings may have been hurt, the truth of verse 56 is the ministry must go on. Now, I preach every Sunday, pretty much. And every Sunday, as I prepare the message, my prayer is for whoever's going to be here on Sunday morning, if they're already a child of God, that they would come to a deeper understanding of Scripture, that they would be transformed a little more like Christ, and they would be sanctified just a little bit more from this world. I also pray, as they get ready to preach this sermon, if there is at least one person here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that this coming Sunday would be the day of their salvation. Now, I don't know if my prayers get answered for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, I've seen some of you grow in miraculous ways in the last almost seven years. But I do know that in the last several months, there hasn't been anybody walk down this aisle to be saved. So, does that mean I shouldn't preach next Sunday if that's what happens again today? No. Why? Because the ministry must go on. And so, when you feel rejected for sharing or proclaiming or living or talking about the gospel, don't let that become a hindrance for you to keep pushing on because the ministry must go on. And when you're involved in ministry, And things aren't going the way you think they should go. It's becoming a complete train wreck. Keep pushing on because the ministry must go on. When you're involved in the nursery and every baby is pooping at the same time, keep doing the ministry. It must go on. When you're in children's church and you feel like you're in the midst of Lord of the Flies, keep doing it. The ministry must go on. We must have the determination of Christ, and no matter what happens, we are going to press on as God's people, and we're going to do it with mercy and compassion and grace and love and sometimes pity for those people who reject Christ. But we must press on, because the ministry, and God has called us all to the ministry, is never going to be done until God brings us home. Someone may need to hear this truth again. It's recorded twice, as I mentioned, verse 51 and 53. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was determined to go to the cross to pay the punishment for your sins, and nothing, nothing was going to stop him from doing that. And that's why we call it good news. I refer to it as the gospel. Because God created you for a relationship with him. And your sins are what are separating you from that relationship. And you may have a preconceived notion, well, I'm a good person and all good people go to heaven, but that's not true. That's not true at all. There are good people who go to hell. Because that's why Jesus Christ had to come. He had to come to pay the price for the sins of the world by dying a painful death on the cross. They placed him in a tomb, but he walked out three days later to show he has the power over death, the authority to forgive sins, and grant eternal life. And if you're here this morning, and you believe that to be true, but you haven't admitted to God, you need his forgiveness, and you need Jesus to be your Savior, and you've not made that a public confession of faith, and that's why we come this time of invitation. We stand and we sing, but if you know I need to be saved today, then I'm going to beg you to step out into the aisle, and come down, and all you have to say is, Pastor Mike, I I need to be saved. We'll pray together, we'll celebrate together, and I promise you, there won't be a person in this room who won't celebrate with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us, and Lord, showing us compassion and mercy. Thank you, Lord, that nothing can separate us from your love. Thank you, Lord, that one day we're going to be with all the saints that have gone before us to be able to sing holy, holy, holy. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. And, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's on the edge of wanting just to give up, Lord, I pray that your spirit would strengthen them and give them a peace. And if there's someone here this morning who's yet to confess you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that this would be the day of their salvation. I pray your spirit For your glory would get a hold of their heart and their eyes would be open to the truth. Forgive us we failed you in any way. We ask you to continue to be glorified in this time of invitation and response. And praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.